Did you ever wish you could tap into the institutional knowledge and experience of someone who served as an Intel practitioner for 40 years? What if all that knowledge and experience was broken down into an easy to read outline that was as relevant as ever and could serve you right now as an intelligence professional? Sound good to you? If so, tune in as this is episode 15, my commentary on an incredible first person account titled, What I Learned in 40 Years of Doing Intelligence Analysis for U.S. Foreign Policymakers by Martin Peterson. You're listening to The Business of Intelligence, a podcast that explores how intelligence serves decision makers beyond the traditional national security audience. Tune in as we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners working at the intersection of business and risk in order to analyze and discuss the field of private sector intelligence. We'll talk about what's working, what isn't, and how intelligence is helping organizations navigate today's global operating environment. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Business of Intelligence podcast. I know it's been a minute, but it feels great to be back, and thanks for tuning in. Like most people, I consume a ton of content, and I do it on multiple devices. You're not going to find me without my iPad. I've got a personal phone, a work phone, of course, my laptop, and I have a desktop computer that I just refuse to get rid of. So needless to say, I constantly find myself in front of a screen when consuming content. However, every once in a while, I will come across an article, a report, a study, or some document that I feel like is just so compelling and it has so much information value that I just have to print it out. It's one of those pieces that I take everywhere with me. It's always in my bag. I'm constantly highlighting it and scribbling notes on it. And in this particular case, it's ultimately one that serves as the foundation for how I've developed an intelligence function for one of the biggest brands in the world. And when I say in this case, I'm talking about a first-person account from Martin Peterson called What I Learned in 40 Years of Doing Intelligence Analysis for U.S. Policymakers. Martin Peterson is a retired senior CIA Director of Intelligence, or DI, officer, and the author of a number of articles on Intel and Intel analysis. And you can easily find his first-person account by just doing a really quick and simple search using the article title. It was published in Studies in Intelligence, Volume 55, Number 1, back in 2011, which may not seem like a long time ago, but remember, that's when it was published. The insights provided by Martin were developed over the course of the 40 years prior, so I think it just goes to show that many of these lessons learned in this field are absolutely timeless, which is why I'm really excited to sort of dive in today and share what I think is most applicable and valuable to you as the private sector intel professional from this firsthand account. So with that as the backdrop, let's jump right in and get started. Now, when I was preparing for this episode, someone recently asked me, why did I choose this topic and why this account as the first episode back after what's been, I know it's been a long hiatus. So what I would say is during our time away, I've taken part in numerous conversations. I've attended multiple industry conferences, and there always seems to be this common theme amongst those conversations and discussions. We all tend to talk about the challenges and the problems that we're facing in our current roles. And of course, we're always on the search for answers to those problems. Now, when I think of of a lot of the problems that I've encountered over the years, I realize that the insights provided by Peterson have served me really well. 
And they've also served as a bit of an inspiration and philosophy for how I do things. So I thought, why not share on this platform as Peterson's insights are, are bound to help you. They're bound to help others listening. And so I thought this would be a great place to start in terms of coming back to the podcast. So let's start by breaking down his firsthand account of 40 plus years of Intel work, which really consists of four main sections, with the first being five fundamental truths about understanding a consumer. Now, as you follow along here, I'm going to do my very best to point out what I think is most relevant to the private sector practitioner. Excuse me. So again, let's start with five fundamental truths about understanding the consumer. And, you know, while he lists five, there are two that I really wanted to specifically zero in on. And that's what I'm going to do here. So the first one is actually truth number one, and it's called the product is, quote, optional equipment, quote, for many key consumers. The product is optional equipment for many key consumers. So what is he telling us with this headline and why does it matter so much? Let me start with the Peterson quote that I've used, I don't know how many times at different speaking engagements and one that is just absolutely tattooed into my conscious. Quote, we're not only optional equipment, we're also guests at their dinner party. If we spill the wine, insult the hosts, and overstay our welcome, we will not be invited back, end quote. And when he says we, what he's talking about is the intelligence cadre or the uh, intelligence analyst. So that quote has stuck with me ever since the first time that I read it. It, uh, It's just constantly on my mind. But it also takes me back all the way to episode one when Mike and I spoke with Craig Singleton. Now, Craig noted back then that within the national security architecture of the government, that architecture provides some sense of comfort in knowing there's always going to be jobs for intelligence professionals. Sometimes you may inherit your own team or or teammates that you might not be so crazy about, but it's sort of a given that there's going to be opportunities there because we obviously need those professionals to help protect our nation. However, in the private sector, that's really not the case. And it just reminds me of that saying, nothing is really given and everything is earned. And that's the takeaway here for me with regards to this optional equipment quote. In the private sector especially, we have to always be selling. We have to always be creating demand for our services. We have to always market ourselves. And I think at a 10 times or a 10x rate compared to the public sector, not just to have influence, but to make sure that our roles continue to exist. Because as much as the field has grown and publications like the Harvard Business Review and Wall Street Journal are taking notice of the field, the service and not just the product is still just optional equipment. And we've all seen the ramifications of that during the economic downturn over the past couple of years. So moving along, Peterson also mentions a couple of other factors that contribute to this idea that intelligence is optional equipment, including how decision makers have very, very little time. They've got numerous sources to turn to. And of course, they don't always understand what we do or how we can help. Now, I know that I've run up against all three of those factors in my career, and I'm guessing that you have as well. Peterson's advice in the firsthand account circles back to the need for marketing, for creating demand for our services, demonstrating value, et cetera, which of course I wholeheartedly agree with. But let me just add a couple of additional points that I think are salient for the private sector practitioner. First, one approach with regards to this is, um, 
you know, you might try to think about how you can make yourself so invaluable that decision makers can't even conceive or think of how they would get rid of the function. Now, I know that many of you did that during the pandemic, and I'm guessing that many of you did that during the invasion of Ukraine as well. And while maybe not at the scale of the pandemic or Ukraine war, perhaps ask yourself, what is the next big thing that we can identify in which our company needs us and, and they can't do without? Now, second, our customers, and I think especially the more senior executives or, or decision makers, definitely have multiple sources to turn to. There's no doubt about that. And it's up to us to make them believe, to make them believe in what we're saying, to make them believe in us, and often to help them overcome their bias for sources other than their professional analysts that they have at their disposal. So how you do that, of course, varies, and it's up to you to find what works best for you. But I think the foundation often starts with ensuring that you're getting as much exposure as you possibly can so those decision makers know and so they're aware of your capability, followed by a proven track record of success to give them the confidence to turn to you instead of someone else, or worse yet, if they turn to the internet or news, <laughs> the news cycle. Now, the lack of understanding of what we do, it's always a huge opportunity, and it's one that many in the private sector face, but it can also be addressed by having the right strategy. But I think more importantly, by just having a strategy at all. One of my greatest lessons learned over the last decade or so in the private sector is that my top customer-facing priority is not my service delivery model. It's not been a particular product line. It's my targeted education, marketing, and outreach efforts to ensure that people know what we do and so they'll use us. So there are tons of different ways to go about it, of course. I'm not necessarily here to tell you, you know, which way to go, what direction to take, because I think every organization is different. Every organization has a different culture. But what I would tell you is, please just make sure you have a strategy for making sure people understand what you do, or else you're always going to be operating at a deficit right off the bat. So that was just one of the five fundamental truths about understanding the consumer and my thoughts in terms of a private sector lens. But there's one additional truth in that section that I also wanted to spotlight. Peterson says, quote, our customers are smarter and more sophisticated than we give them credit for. They have their own independent sources of information and analysis with which we are competing, end quote. Now, to add a private sector perspective to this, I want to take you all the way back to episode 10 with James Tunkey, who's Chief Operating Officer at Ion Asia. So shout out to James. I hope you're doing well, my friend, who gave us some really great advice during that episode. James learned firsthand after years of advising that modern CEOs and modern board members are just incredibly well-connected and, of course, incredibly well-informed. And if you're in the risk business, your game needs to be sharp to bring something of value to these folks. And that is the expectation that you're going to have real, real value, not just tangential value, but real, real value. He also shared what I would consider a constructive warning that the level of conviction and homework you need to do before a big call or briefing with an executive is absolutely critical. You have to be truly, truly informed about the issue. And you have to, of course, understand the business or your organization backwards and forwards. Now, over time, James saw a direct correlation between his level of preparedness and his success as an executive risk advisor. 
And I walked away from that conversation thinking that, you know what, moving forward, I am always going to make the assumption that the customer has at least the same level of knowledge on the issue that I do. And if I adopt that mindset, I'll really set myself up for success regarding my preparation and my ability to add value. So that's something to consider as well. Now, from my experience, it's also really easy to fall into this mental trap of thinking our customers know little to nothing because you know what? We're supposed to be the subject matter experts, not them. And I think we tend to underestimate how much the customer knows as a result. And I am not afraid to admit whatsoever that I've made that mistake numerous times before to include fairly recently. So I think this fundamental truth from Peterson is extremely relevant to us today. And to ensure that we don't trip over ourselves, my advice is to consider the experiences and advice that James shared with us in episode 10. So thank you very much for that, James. Now, the final point that I want to make on this is it's really critical that we acknowledge that we are in a constant competition. Please don't be mistaken. We are absolutely always competing for the minimal time and the critical attention of those that we're trying and hoping to serve. I think acknowledging that is half the battle because we have absolutely no chance if we walk into a situation where we have some sort of sense of entitlement or think that we have a monopoly on providing actionable insights to decision makers just because we're the intelligence function and we're supposed to have the professional analyst because that's just not the case. Okay, everyone, that does it for the first section of Peterson's What I Learned in 40 Years of Doing Intelligence Analysis. So let's move on to the next section, which is titled The Importance of a Service Mentality. So we're on to section two now. Now, this is my absolute favorite part of his account. So I want to start by reading you a couple of excerpts. So just bear with me here for a minute or two, because I want to read directly from this paper. Quote, A service mentality is the opposite of a product mentality, which often seems to drive the work of intelligence analysis. And the difference is easiest to explain by comparing the two. In a product mentality, the focus is on the producer who thinks of a product as his or hers or theirs. It is also about packaging that product and disseminating it widely. Success is measured in numbers, how many units were produced or How many received each unit? In a service mentality, the focus is on the customer, the consumer of our services, and specifically on how best to meet the customer's needs. It's not about the author or the producing component. It's about the recipient. It's about helping that customer understand an issue. It's about being timely, relevant, expert, and corporate in our approaches to providing service, intelligence analysis. Success is measured not by the number of units produced, but by how well the product addresses and answers the specific concerns of an identified and targeted audience, end quote. Now, just going back to that word corporate, I did not add that in. He used the word corporate, which I find very interesting because I think there's meaning in that. And I'll let you sort of think about that on your own on why he included the word corporate. Now, Other than that, I almost don't know what to say, because what more can you say after listening to that quote? I can't imagine this point being articulated any better. But wait, there is a little bit more. So let me go back to a quote again. Okay, quote, product and service are not mutually exclusive. 
Ideally, every product we produce should be infused with a service mentality, although we often act like we are in the product business. What difference, does it, what difference does it make? When a product is more important than the service it provides, we relax our standards to get the product, another unit of production, off the assembly line and out the door. Close enough becomes good enough and the brand name suffers, end quote. Now, after listening to that insight, ask yourself if your team acts like it's in the product business. Do you think the product that you produce is yours? Now, if the answer is yes to either one of those questions, I, you know, I actually wouldn't blame you because most of us have collectively had those habits ingrained in us somewhere along the way of our professional journey. So I think we need to give each other a little bit of grace here. However, we know by now, especially after listening to Peterson's advice, that it's really not about the product. It's about the customer. In the past, I know that my teammates have grown really, really frustrated with me. And I think they've almost labeled me anti-product because I just refuse to put a ton of energy into developing, quote, product lines, end quote. So now's a good time, I think, to do just a very, very quick sidebar and provide my perspective on the usefulness of just sending out products without first collaborating with the customer or at least, in, at least infusing them with a service mentality. So if you're stuck in a rut and you find yourself sending out products, and I, I guess the classic example is perhaps a weekly report or a monthly report. Some organizations and some teams obviously even have a daily report, which is an incredible cadence, but you haven't conferred or you haven't partnered with customers beforehand. Um, I think there's a few different things to think about in terms of how you can transition from product producer to service provider. So let me just offer a couple of those things to consider. First, I think we often tend to choose a mass marketing approach, meaning quantity over quality, because honestly, it's just easier. And it's also quicker compared to building out customer relationships or partnerships, or maybe because other obstacles are standing in our way to include, and I I absolutely hate to say this and hate to acknowledge this, but sometimes we have leaders that just refuse to let us engage with key customers or key stakeholders outside of our inner circle, or perhaps what I mean by that is our, our department, whatever department that we fall in. Now, depending on the maturity level of your program, I think a mass marketing approach can definitely have real benefits. And so I am not trying to downplay this because I think there are some serious benefits to this. So number one, it helps accomplish this marketing mission and marketing effort that we know is so important in terms of getting our names out there, in terms of reaching a broad audience. And especially if you're a new function or you're trying to reach a new audience that you previously hadn't connected with before. So I think there's real value there. Second, I think we all have a pretty common dilemma in the private sector where after you engage with a potential customer, they might, they might say something like, you know, this sounds really interesting. What you all do sounds very cool. I think it could help me, but can you show me an example of what you do or what you're talking about so I can see if it will really help me? So rolling out routine products in the form of, let's say, a weekly or monthly report can definitely do that. And I think it can help bridge that gap. However, sort of moving past that, if you are trying to evolve from this type of approach and really move from a product producer 
to a service provider, you can apply a simple strategy that focuses on quality over quantity. And it's what I call the rule of five. Now, the rule of five is very, very simple. And it is most definitely not scientific whatsoever. But it goes like this. The rule of five is when you come up with a little strategy in terms of how and who you want to target around five potential customers. Who are five potential customers that you would love to serve, that you would love to partner with, that you would love to work with in some regard? Now, you're really playing the percentages game here because, again, this is not scientific, but I really think there's something to this. Out of those five, there's probably going to be at least one that just says, you know what? No, thanks. This is not for me. I don't need you all. I'm moving on. I think there's going to be two or so that are going to really appreciate what you provide them. Maybe they'll treat it as a transactional, so you'll have a transactional relationship, but you've got a couple of customers. Another one, I think, is going to end up being a partner of yours. You know, let's collaborate together on this. Let me sit down and tell you exactly what I'm looking for, what decision I'm trying to make, how I think you can help me. And you create that relationship and that bond, which is incredibly effective and satisfying. And then the last one out of those five could become your champion. It's that person that really sponsors you, maybe talks about your function to a senior executive or a new department or a new function that you've been trying to sort of break into. So if you think about batching that strategy, that rule of five strategy a few times, before you know it, you're going to have a handful of champions. You're going to have a handful of customers that are partners that are co-creating value with you in terms of your production and the work that you're doing. You're going to have some transactional customers, which is totally fine because they can still advocate for you. And then, you know what, you're going to have a few people that just don't need intelligence or don't think they need intelligence. And that's okay too, because then you don't have to spend any time or exert any energy and in, in going after those customers. So I think the rule of five, as simple as it is, can be incredibly powerful and effective. Besides that, I go back to what Peterson talked about in his firsthand account, which I think is really should be standard operating procedure for, for all of our teams, which is, you know, identify a specific audience when you get started and make sure you have an intelligence question that you're trying to answer up front. The lack of those two things is often the root of the issues that we have um, from going from a product producer to a service provider. So, okay, enough about that. A little bit of a soapbox, but this was my favorite section of the article. There's much more in terms of this section called the importance of a service mentality. Obviously, go back and read it if you have a chance. But let's once again transition now and move on to the third section in Peterson's account, which is called The Six Things I Learned. The Six Things I Learned. So one of my goals when I decided to do this episode was not to cover everything, because I hope what you're going to do is you're going to go, you're going to do a search of this thing. You're going to print it off or you're going to save it digitally and you're going to read it. And so you can absorb it all on your own. So I'm not going to comment on everything in this section because six is, is somewhat of a, of a high number here. But here's a preview of the six things I learned section, which includes the following. How one thinks about the mission affects deeply how one does the mission. Second, intelligence failures come from failing to step back to think about underlying trends, forces, and assumptions. 
not from failing to connect dots or to predict the future. Third, good analysis makes the complex comprehensible, which is not the same as simple. Fourth, there is no substitute for knowing what one is talking about, which is not the same as knowing the facts. Fifth, intelligence analysis starts when we stop reporting on events and start explaining them. And sixth, managers of intelligence analysts get the behavior they reward, so they had better know what they are rewarding. Now, after going through all six of those, I would have to tell you they all resonate with me, but what really stood out to me from a private sector lens was number four. There is no substitute for knowing what one is talking about, which is not the same as knowing the facts. And number five, intelligence analysis starts when we stop reporting on events and start explaining them. Now, the reason both of those stood out to me was I think private sector practitioners, um, you know, there's a downside risk that's common to both of those that we should really be aware of. And that's the risk of damaging our credibility with decision makers or customers. I think back to something I've witnessed firsthand in recent years, which was an analyst that was essentially a walking Wikipedia page. And, you know, on one hand, I mean that as a compliment. The memory was incredible and like nothing I've ever seen before. This person could impressively just regurgitate fact after fact when talking about a variety of different topics. And they always did so in such a confident and commanding manner. It was really easy to convince certain customers that they knew that that analyst knew what they were talking about. Now, going back to Peterson's piece, he mentions that, quote, the business of intelligence analysts is more about putting facts in perspective than it is having command of the facts. We are paid not for what we know, but for our ability to think about what we know or think we know, end quote. And that ability to make the leap is what this particular analyst found challenging, meaning the leap of not just repeating the facts, but providing critical analysis about what we knew and to use that analysis to communicate why it mattered to our organization. Now, as Peterson mentions early on, our customers are smarter and more sophisticated than we give them credit for. So in my example, I witnessed this particular analyst really damage their credibility and honestly, that of our team by just confidently regurgitating facts with senior level decision makers. And so therein really lies the lesson. Having a good memory can be impressive to some, there's no doubt. But I think critical thinking and the ability to understand how the outside affects the inside, meaning how external forces and factors might impact your organization, is critical to our success. And our more sophisticated customers they're going to see right through us if we can't make that leap. And if that happens, if they see through us, it's really hard to recover from that. So similarly, not adhering to the principle of intelligence analysis starts when we stop reporting on events and start explaining them is something that is, I think, just spot on advice and something that's really critical in the private sector as well. So Peterson says in his account, quote, our production cycle puts a premium on being agile, quick, and smart. It is often 24 hours or less. The Directorate of Intelligence is one place where a consumer can ask a question and get an answer, a thoughtful and considered one, overnight. It is one of the Directorate's greatest strengths. It's also one of its great vulnerabilities. It makes it hard to step back and think about underlying causes, drivers, and variables, especially in a crisis situation. End quote. 
Now, listen, I am a bit hesitant to, to generalize here. I know this is probably not fair, but I've been around long enough that my sense is that just reporting on events versus sometimes explaining them could be one of those bad habits that we've collectively picked up somewhere along the way in our professional journey. And I know I've been guilty of that. The teams that I've worked on have been guilty of that. And there are a few reasons why I think that happens. It might be because in the private sector, we are constantly focusing on the urgency of the immediate or the next crisis, even though it might not really be a crisis. And we find ourselves trying to address multiple fires in today's never-ending news cycle from customers who are also accustomed to receiving on-demand answers. Now, I know that's a situation that we probably all found ourselves in. I think the so what for the private sector practitioner here is that despite that pressure, we don't always have to be first in our communication, which can result in just regurgitating the news. Let's be confident in our value proposition and what no one else in the organization can really do, which boils down to contextualizing these events in a meaningful way that facilitates action and or understanding with regards to decision-making. No one else in the company and your organization can really do that like you. So like lesson number four, we risk damaging our credibility if we're telling our customers things that they already know instead of why it matters. And worse yet, we'll slowly make ourselves irrelevant and we'll be viewed as optional equipment before you know it. All right, everyone, that was section three. I know we're moving quickly here, which was the point, but we're now nearing the end and Peterson closes his firsthand account with a section called Why It All Matters. This section is really summarized by the author saying that this is a really difficult business, (laughs) but I do want to paraphrase a few excerpts here that I think you're going to relate to. So let me do that quickly. Peterson says, quote, I know it's damn hard. It is frustrating. It is exhausting. And even the best efforts will be picked at. The analyst's work will be criticized by the knowledgeable and the ignorant alike. It will even be demonized at times, independent of its quality, and it will always be hostage to the politics of the moment. But what intelligence analysts do has impact. It matters. I've seen the quiet victories of intelligence and the mistakes averted, And I've seen critics become advocates because of what analysts do every day, end quote. Now, I've read that I don't know how many times, and it really resonates with me because the world of private sector intelligence is so damn hard. It's beyond frustrating at times. And the job has likely never been more exhausting as it has been over the last few years, as we've navigated the pandemic, followed by Russia, Ukraine, followed by umpteen other things that we've had to work on. We regularly deal with decision makers and customers who think they know better or have a hard time understanding or embracing what makes the function special or who are unaware of the burnout that we've endured in recent years. But just as Peterson noted, I'm also here to tell you that what you do matters. It has impact. We're living in the era of permacrisis, We're navigating through a world of geopolitical uncertainty, and risk and resilience management is an increasingly critical prerequisite for corporate performance. Organizations need you now more than ever. So keep grinding. Don't forget the importance of educating and selling what you do, and show them why you should be a VIP at the proverbial dinner party and not just the guest. 
Well, that is it, everyone, for this episode. I want to thank you all for spending part of your day with us. If you like what you hear, please like and subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast so you're notified anytime we release new content, as there is much more on the way, I promise. You can also give us a follow on LinkedIn. More importantly, though, please spread the word by just telling a friend or a colleague and definitely, definitely let us know who we should have on the show. We'd love to hear from you. So please let us know what you think. We hope you'll be back for episode 16, which is going to be a recap and review of this week's Global Security Exchange in Dallas, Texas. So until next time, take care of yourselves and everyone around you. Thanks all.